0: Chapter Fourteen of The Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty. Chapter Fourteen A Surprise. Dick was much pleased with the Governor. He was evidently an outspoken old soldier, and, though rough, his bearded face had an honest and kindly expression. And Dick thought to himself, if my father fell into his hands I don't think he would be treated with any unnecessary hardship, though no doubt the Sultan's orders would be obeyed. When a soldier came in to say that the horses were at the door, they went out. An officer was standing beside them, and the governor presented him as his chief artillery officer. "'You have not brought your horse,' he said. "'No, Your Excellency. "'The distance is not great, and we should need to dismount so many times to get a view from the walls that it would not be worth while to ride.' "'In that case, we may as well walk also,' Dick said. "'I would rather do so too,' the Governor said. "'I proposed riding, because I thought you might be tired. "'As Bakir Miram says, the distance is not great.' The walls themselves, with the exception of those of the two forts, are not more than a half a mile in extent, for in most places the rocks go sheer down, and their defenses are of course unnecessary. We will inspect this fort first. They went round the walls, Dick and his companion listening to the suggestions of the two officers. The principal one was that a wall should be raised inside the gate. The English last time got in here by rushing in at the tail of the fugitives from below, They were in before the gates could be closed, and took our men so completely by surprise that they were seized with a panic. Were we to raise a semicircular wall behind the gateway, such a thing could not occur again, the Governor said. Of course there would be a gate in the inner wall, but not immediately behind the outer gateway, as if so placed it would be destroyed by the cannon shots that battered the outer gate in. I should therefore put it at one end of the inner wall. This gate would be generally open, but in case of a siege I should have it blocked up with stones piled behind it, placing a number of ladders by which men running in could get on to the walls, and, however closely they were pursued, could make a stand there until the ladders were pulled up. "'That would be an excellent idea,' Surajah said gravely, and I will certainly lay it before the Sultan. "'I suppose you would propose the same for the other fort?' "'Just the same.' The only thing that I would observe, Dick said, is that if an enemy once got a footing on the top there, you could not hope to make a long defence of these forts. And that is so, the Governor agreed. The strength of the defence is not here, but on the upward road, and if the English once gained the top of the forts must fall. But at least it shall not be said, as long as I am Governor, that Savandrug fell almost bloodlessly. In these forts we can at least die bravely and sell our lives to the last. It is for that reason I desire that they shall be so defended that they cannot be carried as they were before by a sudden rush. The other fort was then visited and a tour made round the walls. The suggestions offered by the governor and the officers were all noted down and approved. Then they made what was to Dick the most important part of the inspection, namely an examination of the undefended portion of the rock. The result showed him that, the builders of the defenses had not acted unwisely in trusting solely to nature. At many points the rock fell away in precipices hundreds of feet deep. At other points, although the descent was less steep, it was, as far as he could see from above, altogether unclimbable. But this he thought he would be able to judge better from below. "'Do you have sentries around here at night?' he asked the governor. "'No, it would not be necessary, even if an enemy were encamped below.' If you will ride round the foot of the hill when you leave, you will see for yourself that, save from the side you came up, the place is absolutely inaccessible. The view from the top of the hill was superb. Away to the northeast, the governor pointed out the pagodas of Bangalore, 22 miles away. The distance in the clear air seemed comparatively trifling. Are there many troops here? Dick asked. There are about five battalions of the regular troops and three chela battalions. These can hardly be counted as troops. They have never been of the slightest use. In the last war they ran like sheep. It is a fancy of the sultans, but indeed he can hardly expect men to fight who have been forced into the ranks and made to accept Mohammedanism against their will. Naturally, they regard an invader not as an enemy, but as a deliverer. Of course, the sultan's idea was that since the native troops drilled and led by Englishmen fought so well, the chelas who were also drilled and led by Englishmen would do the same. But the company's troops are willing soldiers, and it is the English leading more than the English drill that makes them fight. If the Chellas were divided among the hill fortresses, they might do good service, and I could, as far as fighting goes, do with a battalion of them here, for mixed up with my men, they would have to do their duty. But, of course, they will never be placed in the hill forts, for one would never be safe from treachery. Even if all the lower walls were in the hands of my own men, some of the Chellas would be sure to manage to desert and give information as to all the defenses. A considerable portion of the upper plateau of the rock was occupied by the huts of the troops, for the forts were much too small to contain them and their families. On their way back they passed through these. Dick looked anxiously, about for white faces, but could see none, nor any building that seemed to him likely to be used as a prison. When they returned to the governor's quarters they found that a room had been placed at their disposal and they presently sat down to dinner with him. "'I suppose you have no English prisoners here,' Dick said carelessly when the meal was over. The Governor paused a moment before he replied. "'I don't want any of them here,' he said shortly. "'Batches are sent up sometimes from Bangalore, but it is only for execution.' "'I am a loyal subject of the Sultan, but I would that this work could be done elsewhere. Almost all the executions take place in the hill-forts in order, I suppose,' that they may be done secretly. I obey orders, but I never see them carried out. I never even see the captives. They have done no harm, or at most one of their number has tried to escape, for which they are not to be blamed. I always have them shot, whether that is the mode of execution ordered or not. It is a soldier's death, and the one I should choose myself, and so that they are dead it cannot matter little to the Sultan how they die. If they were all shot as soon as they were taken, I should not think so much of it but after being held captive for years and compelled to work, it seems to me that their lives should be spared. As far as giving up my own life is concerned, I of course would willingly do it at the orders of the Sultan, but these executions make me ill. I lose my appetite for weeks afterwards. Let us talk of something else." And the governor puffed furiously away at the hookah he had just lighted. Then the conversation turned to the forts again. "'No, I do not find the life dull,' he said, in answer to a remark of Dick's. "'I did so at first, but one soon becomes accustomed to it. "'I have my wife and two daughters, and there are ten officers, "'so that I can have company when I choose. "'All the officers are married, and that gives society. "'Up here we do not observe strictly the rules of the plains, "'and although the ladies, of course, wear veils when they go beyond the house, "'they put them aside indoors, and the families mix freely with each other, "'so that we get on very well.' You see, there are very few changes ever made, and as many of the ladies are, like my wife, no longer young, we treat them as comrades. In the morning Dick and Surajah mounted their horses, took a hearty farewell of the governor, and rode down to the gate. A soldier had been sent down half an hour before, and they found their escort in readiness to move. They had decided that, before going to the next fort, they would ride round the foot of the hill of Savandroog, This they did, going at a foot pace and scanning the cliffs and slopes as they passed. Sometimes they reined up their horses and rode a little farther back, so as to have a view to the very summit. When they completed the round, they agreed that there were but two spots where it seemed to them that an ascent was barely possible, and they were very doubtful whether the difficulties, when examined more closely, would not prove to be absolutely insurmountable. "'This is not a satisfactory outlook,' Dick said but fortunately there is now no motive for climbing the precipice. Certainly those places would be of no use to a party wanting to make an attack. In the first place, though you and I might get up with soft shoes on, I am sure that English soldiers with muskets and ammunition pouches could never do it, especially at night, and in the daytime even if a body of troops strong enough to be of any use could get up. Those who first arrived at the top would be killed before the others could come to their assistance, and a few stones rolled down would sweep all behind them to the bottom. I don't like turning my back on the place he went on as they turned their horses' heads to the south, for Savandrug was the farthest north of the forts they were to visit. It seems to me that even now my father may be there. "'How can that be, Dick?' Surajah said in surprise. "'Nothing could be more straightforward than the governor seemed to be. I thought he was even rash in speaking as frankly as he did to us.' "'Oh, I think he saw there was no fear of our repeating what he said, Surajah.' He is a frank, outspoken old soldier, and has evidently been so disgusted at the treatment of the prisoners that he could not mince his words, and yet, you know, he did not absolutely say he had no prisoners. No, I noticed that he did not reply directly to your question. On the contrary, he distinctly hesitated before he spoke. Now, why should he have done that? He might just as well have said, no, I have no prisoners, they are only sent up here for execution. That would have been his natural answer instead of that he hesitated and then began i don't want any of them here batches are sent up sometimes from bangalore now why did he shirk the question if it had been any other subject i might not have noticed that he had not really answered it but of course as it was so important to one i was listening most anxiously for his reply and noticed his hesitation at once and that he gave no direct answer at all now think it over soraja why should he have hesitated And why should he have turned the question off without answering it, unless there had been some reason? And if so, what could that reason be? Surajah had no suggestion to make, and they rode on for some distance in silence. "'It's quite evident,' Dick went on, after a long pause, "'that he is a kind-hearted man, and that he objects altogether to Tipu's cruelty to the prisoners. Therefore, if he had any captives, his reason for not answering was most likely a kindly one.' "'Yes, I should think so.' You see, he would consider that he should report to the Sultan all particulars we had gathered about the fortress. His remarks about the execution of the prisoners and the worthlessness of the cella battalions and so on, that was a private conversation and was only a matter of opinion, but supposing he had had some prisoners, and had said so, we might, for anything he knew, have had orders to inspect them, and to report about them, as well as about the garrisons and defences. Yes, he might have thought that, Surajah agreed. But, after all, why should he mind that?" Dick did not answer for some time. He was trying to think it out. Presently he reined in his horse suddenly. "'This might be the reason,' he said excitedly. "'This governor may be the very one who we heard had taken my father with him when he was moved from that fort up in the north. He was in command at Kisnegare before he came here, after the war, and he may have gone to Kisnegare from that fort in the north. You see, there have been executions but there have been those of fresh batches sent up and the governor would not include the captive he had brought with him in time his very existence may have been forgotten and he may still be living there that could account for the governor's objection to answer the question as he would be sure that did tippoo hear there was a prisoner here he would send orders for him to be executed at once this may be all fancy surajah but i cannot think of any other reason why he should have shirked my question Dick took up the reins again, and the horses at once started forward. They rode for some little time in silence, Dick thinking the matter over again and again, and becoming more and more convinced he was right. Except that, as he admitted to himself, the prisoner whom the governor wished to shield might not be his father. He was roused at last by Surajah, asking the question, "'Is there anything that you would like us to do?' "'Not now,' Dick replied. "'We could not go back again. We must visit the other forts on our list.' and see what we can find out there. When we have quite assured ourselves that my father is not in any of them, we can think this over again, but at present we must put it aside. However, I shan't rest until I get to the bottom of it. During the next ten days they inspected the forts of Navan Droog, Sundra Ultra and Chittledroog. Few of these were as extensive and none so strong as Savandroog. They did the official part of their business, and assured themselves that no English captives were contained in any of them. The governors all said that prisoners were never kept there many days, and that it was only when Tipu wished to get rid of them that they were sent there. None of the governors made any objection to answering Dick's questions on the subject, generally adding an expression of satisfaction that prisoners were never left long under their charge. "'It entails a lot of trouble,' the governor of Utra said. "'They have to be watched incessantly, and one never feels certain they may not slip away.' look at this place. You would think that no one could make his escape, and yet some ten years ago fourteen of them got away from here. They slid down a precipice where no one would have thought a human being could have gotten down alive. They were all of them retaken except one and executed the following day, but the Sultan was so furious that although it was no fault of the governor, who had sentries placed everywhere, he sent for him to Serengapatam and threw him to the Tigers declaring that there must have been treachery at work. You may be sure that I have no desire to hold English prisoners after that, and when they have been sent here, have been glad indeed when orders came for their execution. A good many were ordered to be starved to death, but I never waited for that. It took too long. Do what I could, the guards would smuggle in pieces of bread, and they lingered on for weeks, so that it was more merciful to finish with them at once, besides making me feel comfortable at the knowledge that there was no chance of their making their escape. There were sentries at their doors as well as on the walls when the fourteen I have told you about escaped, but they dug a passage out at the back of their hut, chose a very dark night, and it was only when the sound of some stones that they dislodged as they scrambled down the precipice gave the alarm to the sentries that their escape was discovered. No, I do not want any prisoners up here, and when they do come there is no sleep for me until I get the order to execute them but they do not often come now. Most of the prisoners who were not given up have been killed since, and there are not many of them left." Upon finishing their round, they returned to Seringapatam, where Dick drew up a full report of the result of their investigations. The Sultan himself went through it with them, questioning them closely, cut off a good many of the items, and gave orders that the other demands should be complied with, and the guns and ammunition sent off at once to the various forts from the great arsenal at the capital. Dick was depressed at the result of their journey. His hopes had fallen lower and lower, as at each fort they visited he heard the same story—that all prisoners sent up to the mountain fortresses had in a short time been put to death. It was possible, of course, that his father might still be at one of the towns where new levies had been drilled, but he had not from the first thought it likely that a merchant sailor would be put to this work and had it not been that he clung to the belief that there was a prisoner at Savandrug, and that the prisoner was his father, he would have begun to despair. It was true that there were still many hill-forts scattered about the country, unvisited, but there seemed no reason why any of the prisoners should have been allowed to survive in these forts, when they had all been put to death in those they had visited, among which were the places that had been most used as prisons. "'I would give it up,' he said to Surajah, were it not that in the first place—' it would almost break my mother's heart. Her conviction that my father is still alive has never been shaken. It has supported her all these years, and I believe that were I to return and tell her that it was no longer possible to hope, her faith would still be unshaken. She would still think of him as pining in some dungeon, and would consider that I had given up the search out of faint-heartedness. That is my chief reason, but I own that I am almost as much influenced by my own conviction that he is in Savandroge, I quite admit that I can give no reason whatever why. If there is a prisoner there at all, it should be my father, and yet I cannot get it out of my mind that it is he. I suppose it is because I have the conviction that I believe in it. Why should I have that impression so strongly if it were not a true one? I tell myself that it, this is, of course, absurd, that I have no real grounds to go upon, and yet that does not shake my faith in the slightest. "'It is perhaps because we have been so fortunate. Altogether everything has turned out so favorably that I can't help thinking he is alive, and that I shall find him. What do you think, Surajah? Ought we to give it up?' "Mm, "'Why should we?' said surya replied stoutly. "'I think you are right in that we are destined to find your father. There is no hurry. We have not been anything like so long a time as we expected to be, and fortune has, as you say, befriended us wonderfully.' We are well off here. We have positions of honor. For myself, I could wish for nothing better. Well, at any rate, we will wait for a time, Dick said. We may be sent to Savandroog again, and if so, I will not leave the place until I find out from the governor whether he has still a prisoner, and if so, manage to obtain a sight of him. The next day, Dick was informed by the Chamberlain that the officer who was in charge of the wild beasts had fallen into disgrace and that the Sultan had appointed him to the charge. Dick was well pleased in some respects. The work would suit him much better than examining stores, and seeing that the servants of the palace did their duty, but on the other hand it lessened his chance of being sent to Savon again. However, there was no choice in the matter, and Surajah cheered him by saying, "'You must not mind, Dick, as not everything turned out for the best, and you may be sure that this will turn out so also.' It was indeed but two days later that Dick congratulated himself upon the change, for Surajah was sent by Tipu with an order for the execution of four English prisoners. Dick knew nothing of the matter until Surajah, on his return, told him that he had been obliged to stop and see the orders carried out by poison being forced down the unfortunate officer's throats. "'It was horrible,' he said with tears in his eyes. "'Horrible,' Dick repeated. "'Thank God I have been put to other work.' for I feel that I could not have done it. And yet to have refused to carry out the tyrant's orders would have meant death to us both, while it would not have saved the lives of these poor fellows. Anyway, I would not have done it. As soon as I had received the order, I would have come to you, and we would have mounted and ridden off together and taken our chance. Let us talk of something else, Surajah said. Are the beasts all in good health? Well, as well as they can be when they are fed so badly and so miserably cooped up. I made a great row this morning and have kept the men at work all day in cleaning out the places. They were all in a horrible state, and before I could get the work done I had to threaten to report the whole of them to Tipu, and they knew what would come of that. I told Fosley last night that the beasts must have more flesh, and got an order from him that all the bones from the kitchen should be given to them. That evening, when Dick, on his way to the apartments of one of the officers, was going along a corridor that skirted the portion of the palace occupied by the A figure came out suddenly from behind the drapery of a door, dropped on her knees beside him and, seizing his hand, pressed it to her forehead. It was to all appearances an Indian girl in the dress of one of the attendants of the Zenana. "'What is it, child?' he said. "'You must have mistaken me for someone else.' "'No, Bahador, it is yourself I wanted to thank. One of the other attendants saw you go along this corridor some time ago, and ever since I have watched here of an evening, whenever I could get away unobserved in hope of seeing you.' It was I, my lord, whom the tiger was standing over when you came to our rescue. I was not greatly hurt, for I was pushed down when the tiger burst in, and save that it seized me with one of its paws and tore my shoulder, I was unhurt. Ever since I have been hoping that the time would come when I could thank you for saving my life. Oh, I am glad to have done so, child. But you had best retire into this Anana. It would not be good for you or me were I found talking to you. The girl rose to her feet submissively, and he now saw her face, which in the dim light that burnt in the corridor he had not hitherto noticed. Why, he exclaimed with a start, you are English. Yes, Sahib, I was brought here eight years ago. I am fourteen now. There were other English girls here then, but they were all older than me, and have been given away to officers of the Sultan. I am afraid I shall be too ere long. I have dreaded it so much. But, oh, Sahib, you are a favorite of the Sultan. If he would but give me to you, I should not mind so much. Dick was about to reply when he heard a distant footfall. "'Go in,' he exclaimed. "'Someone is coming. I will speak to you again in a day or two. When he returned to his room, he told Surajah what had happened. "'It will, at any rate, give me a fresh interest here,' he said. "'It is terrible to think that a young English girl should be in Tippoo's power, and that he can give her whenever he likes to one of his creatures. Of course, according to our English notions, she is still but a young girl.' But as your people out here marry when the girls are but of the age of this child, it's different altogether. She does not suspect that you are English. No, as I told you, I had only just discovered that she was so when I heard a footstep in the distance. But I shall see her again tomorrow or the next day. You will be running a great risk, Surajah said gravely. Oh, not much risk, I think, Dick replied. She is only a little slave girl, and as the tiger was standing over her when I fired, no doubt I did save her life and it would be natural enough that she would, on meeting me, speak to me and express her thanks. That would be a good excuse, Surajah agreed, but a suspicious tyrant like Tipu might well insist that this was only a pretense, and that the girl was really giving you a letter or message from one of the inmates of the Zenana. Dick was silent for a time. I will be very careful, he said. I must certainly see her again, and it seems to me, at present, that whatever risk there may be, I must try to save this poor girl from the fate that awaits her. I cannot conceal from myself that, however much I may refuse to admit it, the hopes of my finding and saving my father are faint indeed, and although this girl is nothing to me, I should feel that my mission had not been an entire failure if we could take her home with us and restore her to her friends. No, I do not think, he went on, in answer to a grave shake of Surajah's head, that it would add to our danger in getting away. We know that if we try to escape and are caught our lives will be forfeit in any case, and if she were disguised as a boy, we could travel with her without attracting any more observation than we should alone. She would not be missed for hours after she had left, and there would be no reason whatever for connecting her departure with ours. I don't say, Sarajah, that I have made up my mind about it. Of course, it has all come fresh to me, and I really have not had time to think it over in any way. Still, it does seem to me that when the time for our leaving comes, whether we ride off openly as Tippoo's officers, or whether we go off in disguise, there ought to be no very great difficulty in taking her with us. You see that yourself, don't you? I can't give any opinion about it at present, Surajah replied, I do think that it will add to our difficulties, however we may go, but I don't say it cannot be managed. Oh, I should think not, Surajah, and it would be worth doing, however great the difficulties might be. Just think of the grief that her parents must feel at her loss and the joy when she is restored to them. You see, it would be no great loss of time if we were obliged to take her down to Tripatli first, and then come back again to renew our search. It would take but a week going and returning, and now that the passes are all open to us, the difficulties would be nothing to what they were when we went back after our scouting expedition. Besides, at that time they were more vigilant all along the frontier than they will be now, because there was war between the two countries and Tipu was anxious that no news of his movements should be taken down. There is no talk of war now, for though Tipu makes no disguise of his fury at his losses, especially at coorg being taken from him, and is evidently bent upon fighting again, it will take a very long time to get his army into an efficient state, to repair his fortresses, to complete all the new works of defense he is getting up here, and to restore the confidence of his soldiers. I should think it will be fully four or five years before he is ready to fight again at any rate if we once get well away from here with the girl we ought to have no difficulty in getting across the frontier it would mean but a fortnight lost in the search for my father and anyhow we are not making any progress that way as long as we stop here the only drawback would be as far as i can see that we should lose the benefit of our official positions but unless we happen to be sent off with orders to other hill forts that position will only hamper our movements besides we should still have our badges of office and Tippoo's official orders to the governors. Possibly the news that we had disappeared might reach the governors of some of the forts in this neighbourhood, but it would not be likely to travel very far. His officers so frequently fall into disgrace, and are either killed or thrown to the Tigers, that the fact of our being missing would scarcely excite a remark, and those who heard of it would suppose that we had either been secretly made away with, or that, having learned that Tippoo was displeased with us, we had fled. Surajah nodded. His confidence in his leader was complete, and he was always ready to follow unquestioningly. There is one thing, Surajah, Dick concluded. This state of things cannot last much longer, anyhow. For next time it might be me, he ordered to see to the execution of an English prisoner, and that would mean that I should, as soon as I received the command, make a bolt for it. So, you see, our stay here, in any case, may not last many days. I would rather run any risks than carry out such an order. Two evenings later Dick went down the corridor at the same hour as that on which he had before met the English girl. She came out from behind the hangings at once when he passed. "'I knew you would come, Bahador," she said joyfully. "'I could see that you were as kind as you were brave, and would have pity upon a poor little white slave. "'I have much that I want to say to you, child. This is not a good place for speaking. Someone might come along at any moment. How long can you be away without fear of your absence being noticed?' "'Not long now,' she said. "'In the morning I am sent out on messages, and could meet you anywhere.' "'Very well. I will remain in my room all the morning to-morrow, and if you do not come, then I will stay in next day.' "'I will come,' the girl said unhesitatingly. He then gave her full instructions how to find his room, and made her repeat them to him, in order to be sure that she had them correctly. "'Do you know my companion at sight?' he asked. "'Oh, yes, I have seen him often.' Well, either he or I will be standing at my door. It is well that you should look carefully round before you enter, so as to be sure there is no one in the corridor and that you can slip in unobserved. You may be sure that I am asking you to come for no idle freak, but because I have something very important to say to you. Oh, I fancy I hear footsteps. Good-night." Dick was sure that he and Surajah would both be at liberty next day, for Tipu had that morning started for Bangalore where a large number of men were at work repairing the fortifications and removing all signs of the British occupation from the fort and palace. He was likely to be away for at least a fortnight. As soon as Ibrahim had swept the room after their early breakfast, Dick gave him a number of small commissions to be executed in the town, and told him that he should not require him again until it was time to bring up their meal from the kitchen. Then he and Surajah by turns watched at the door. An hour later Surajah, who was upon the watch, said, The girl is coming. There was no one else in sight, and when Surajah beckoned to her, she hurried on, and, passing through the curtains at the door, entered the room. It had been arranged that Surajah should remain on watch, so that should by any chance one of the officials of their acquaintance come along, he might go out and talk with him in the corridor, and, on some excuse or other, prevent his entering the room, if he showed any intention of doing so. Now, in the first place, Dick said, as he led the girl to the divan and seated her there, what is your name my name is gurla no i mean your proper name my name used to be annie annie mansfield bahador and my name is dick holland he said in english she gave a start of surprise yes annie i am a countryman of yours she looked at him almost incredulously and then an expression of aversion succeeded that of confidence in her face she sprang from the divan and drew herself up in dignity "'Please let me go,' she said haughtily. "'You have saved my life, but if you had saved it twenty times, I could not like a man who is a deserter.' Dick had at first been speechless with astonishment at the girl's change of manner, and at her reception of the news he had thought would have been very pleasant to her. As her last words threw a light upon the matter, he burst into a merry laugh. "'I am no deserter, Annie, save my friend at the door and yourself. There is no one here who knows that I am English.' Sit down again, and I will tell you how I came to be here. My father was the captain of an English ship. She was wrecked on the west coast, and he was seized and brought up here a prisoner eight years ago. My mother, who was a daughter of the late Raja of Tripatli, who married an English lady, taught me to speak Hindustani, so that when I got old enough I could come out here and try to find out if my father was still alive, and if so, to help him escape. I had only just come up here with my friend, who is an officer of the Raja's, when that affair with the tiger took place. Then, as you know, Tipu made us both officers in the palace. Of course, while we are here, we can do nothing toward finding out about my father, and we should not have remained here much longer anyway, and may have to leave at any moment. Since you met me, and I found out that there was an English girl captive here, it has, of course, changed my plans, and I feel that I could not go away and leave you to the fate you told me of, and that, if possible, I must take you away with me. That is, of course, if you are willing to go with us, and prepared to run a certain amount of risk." "'Do not take on so,' he continued as the girl threw herself on her knees, and, clinging to him, burst into a passion of tears. "'Do not cry like that,' and, stooping down, he lifted her and placed her in a corner of the divan. "'There,' he said, patting her on the shoulder, as she sobbed almost convulsively, "'try and compose yourself. We may be disturbed at any moment, and may not have an opportunity of talking again.' so we must make our arrangements in readiness to leave suddenly. I may find it necessary to go at an hour's notice. You may, as you said, be given by Tippoo to one of his favourites at any time. Fortunately, he has gone away for a fortnight, so we have, at any rate, that time before us to make our plans. Still, it is better that we should arrange now as much as we can. End of chapter fourteen. Recording by Mike Harris.